mother-in-law, Maria, and just pray, Father, for... Lord, just you would meet this woman where she is at in the midst of this, this health issue that she's dealing with. Um, Lizette asked for a sal- prayer for salvation, so we, we pray for that, Lord, that you would bring people into her life to share the gospel. God, that you would meet her in the midst of the, all that she's dealing with here. Lord, I also lift up my brother Roman, as uh, I believe he said it was his cousin who had passed away, and pray for any opportunities that you give him. Lord, pray that the word would go out, and Father, this family would be ministered to as well. And so, Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Pray once again that you would guide us in and through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Continuing on in Mark, chapter 14, we've been looking at the hands of man. The Lord is being delivered into them just as he said he would be in Mark chapter 9, verse 31. And it's along the hands of man that we are dividing chapter 14 into. The first week we saw Mary in her hands of worship and a holy anointing. Next, last week, we saw Judas as he handed Jesus over to a horrible betrayal. And tonight we're going to see Peter who was hands off in prayer in a human failure. And then next week, lastly, we'll see the religious community as they laid hands on him in a hopeless act. Once again, the Lord is just before the cross. It's right there, right in front of him, and it's really the night before, and here he is. And we have some rich typologies in this section of Scripture to see the things that are going on. We understand the things that are going on in the background and the things that are going on physically at that time. So picking up at verse 27, verses 27 through 31, And Jesus said to them, now these, these are his apostles, Uh, he's either in the upper room or he's just leaving the upper room or he has left the upper room. But it says, when Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. We know that there was none of the apostles at the cross of Christ with the exception of the apostle John. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And what Jesus is telling them, I'm not giving up. Jesus is forever with us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. 29, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. You want to make the Lord laugh? Tell him what you will do. And that's what Peter is doing. Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Jesus said to him, and surely I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. And so the focus is about to change from Jesus, or to Jesus, Peter, James, and John as they start their route to the, or from the upper room as they celebrated the Passover to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so what we're seeing here in that route is this, These things are being spoken. Peter stands up and says what he feels he needs to say, although they're just going to be empty words. The Gospel of John gives us a little bit more insight into what's going on and and really symbolic insight. Because remember now, it is the Passover season. There's those who estimate something, these things, and we've looked at this before, but more than likely there was somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 lambs without blemish. All of those lambs were to be selected by the families, and they were to be slaughtered. So can you imagine slaughtering and draining the blood out of 200,000 lambs? Well, again, in the Gospel of John, we're told in John chapter 18, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. The the brook Kedron is a small stream that flowed past the Temple Mount. It is believed that the... Where the sheep were slain, there was sewer pipes, if you will, that would lead and would dump into that brook. You had to do something with all of that blood. And so as Jesus is crossing over that brook, you can imagine the rich typology. There are all of these sacrifices, and and it's not just the, the sheep of that time or the blood of that time, but you have to take into consideration the blood of all of the sacrifices that were made on that altar in the temple. And so there had to be that continuous flow, because what was the 
purpose of the blood of the sacrifice was to cover the sins of mankind. Could never do away with, but had to be continuously done for the purpose of covering it. Now, the issue is man continued to sin, so the the lambs would have to continue to bleed. And you have that picture there of this, this flowing river, this flowing brook of blood that can never achieve the purpose that man needed for it to achieve. In Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, it says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, the sprinkling, uh, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more so shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we're talking of this new covenant, this better sacrifice. The old covenant was the sacrifice of bulls and goats and lambs. And again, that could do nothing but cover sin. What's the problem with covered sin? Well, there's many issues, but one of the big things is man cannot come before a holy God. As those Old Testament saints who died, even though they died in belief in the Messiah who was to come, still when they died, they went to Hades, this dwelling place, this waiting place, if you will, until the sacrifice was made that washed away sin. Because just because of covered sin, man still could not enter in to the throne room of God. It wasn't until Jesus Christ paid the price, spilled his own blood, but because of the blood of Christ, the sins of humanity, or at least those who believe, were washed away. Jesus descended to that place of Hades and led captivity captive, took back those people into himself. The gates of heaven were open. Because of the blood of Christ, they could enter into the throne room of God, and it was because of that that we're able to enter into that throne room as well. It's the fulfillment of what all of those sacrifices were, were leading to. And so what you have is this river of blood that's flowing. Christ is crossing that river and he is on his way to pay the price that he paid. What we see in Peter with all of this symbolism is the endless flow of what man tries to do for God. And again, that's part of the reason for the first covenant was to realize you can't do anything for God. You're going to have to constantly make sacrifice. You're going to have to constantly keep the holy days. And, and all of those things that are contained in the Old Testament is all there's going to be for you is failure in the flesh. And so two times Peter says to the face of Christ, he says what he will do. In verse 29 again, Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, I will not be. And then down in verse 31, but he smoked more vehemently. If I have to die to you, I will not deny you. And we know he did neither because, well, when man stands before a holy God and tells him what he will do, who is it that we're more in line with? Well, Peter said that he won't deny him, that he would even die for him. Now, what happens if Okay, Jesus says, okay, go ahead. You know, I'll, I'll let you do that. I, I don't want to take sins of the world upon me. Well, if Peter goes and dies, well, Peter is eternally damned. P- Peter is, is going to be lost for all of eternity because there's Christ who is going to pay the price for his sin. Peter substitutes himself for Christ, and now Peter, he's cast into hell for all of eternity. But the bigger problem is so are we all. Nobody can die for Christ. And so the idea is Peter is more in line with Satan than he is with God. I mean, maybe he has good intentions and all, but it's not going to fulfill the plan of God. And so Peter here is more in line with the five I wills of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 13 through 15. Do you remember who uttered those I wills? That was Lucifer. And so he's more in line. That's why back in Matthew chapter 16, different event, but basically the same thing. Peter says that he'll die for Christ, and Christ tells him, get behind me, Satan, because that is of the devil. That thwarts the plan of God and the redemption of mankind. Christ had to go to that cross because, again, it's because, well, 
he never committed sin. And because Christ never committed sin, he would never die. But as he went to that cross, he took the sins of the world upon him. And because he took sin upon him, he died. And what was the typology that we see? And we'll see it later on, not tonight, but in future studies. Everything turned dark. And it's as if mankind, at that moment, that sin of the world was placed upon Christ. As sin was placed, there was, there was no hope. But what happened? Light came. When did Christ achieve victory over sin? It's, it's a guess. The Bible doesn't tell us at the exact moment. But after he died, the lights came back on. After he died, darkness was taken away. And I really believe it was at that moment, at that moment, that darkness, because now man has hope as he has never had hope, as Christ now has achieved victory. How do we know Christ achieved victory over sin? Well, because sin kills, but when you achieve victory over sin, that which previously kills, or talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but we know that Christ achieved victory over sin because he came back to life. And so since sin brought death, sin was placed upon him, so he died. Also, we know because he came back to life, he achieved victory over sin. Because he achieved victory over sin, we are able to achieve victory over sin as well. We're told in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-five: O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, or because of this, he says, my beloved brethren, speaking to Christians, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So verse 58, what I just read, as far as my beloved brethren, that fits the apostles. Again, these guys were always getting it wrong. They became filled, Acts chapter 2, with the Holy Spirit. And because of this great victory that Christ achieved over sin, they were emboldened in him, willing to give up their lives, not for and substituting Christ, but because of Jesus Christ. Here I am, Lord. Here's my life. Take it and use it for your glory. And so, Peter... Peter's I wills are rebuffed by the Lord back in Mark chapter 14, this time in verse 30. Jesus said to him, and surely I say to you that today, even this night before the rooster closed twice, you will deny me three times. And what you said you will do, Peter, you will fail because all humanity fails when they try to deal with sin apart from Jesus Christ. And so again, this lesson given, this picture exposed just before Christ goes to the cross so that we would know that, well, if it was me there, it'd be the same thing. I, I could, nobody could take the place of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Christ did take our place. And that's the reason we rejoice. We rejoice in what we just celebrated his birth. We rejoice here in a few months, Paul. Easter's coming. Uh, <laughs> I was just telling Terry, we've got to start planning for Easter now. Um, but it's so true, you know, the, the, the death but the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are rich realities within our Christian life that we would do well to meditate upon these things, to sit and to think of these things, and to understand what really scripturally occurred in these things and what impact they have upon my life. Because as far as my sins, if I have to deal with my sins, I, I try to live a perfect life, but I fail. And we all fail time and time again. Again, it's that dilemma Paul had. The things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. The things that I want to do, I find myself not practicing. And again, he's just going back and forth. And who will deliver me from this, this body of death? But then he comes to that conclusion. Again, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those who are still trying to live that perfect life, going through that dilemma of Romans chapter 7, there's condemnation for them. But for those who have cast their cares on the Lord Jesus Christ and understand the magnitude of what he's done and have received that by faith, then there is no condemnation for that person. Interesting that we get the word cocky from a rooster. That the cock crowed three times. Peter was being very arrogant here. And arrogance before the Lord just flat out doesn't fly. Verse 32 through 42. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. 
And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and, and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further, fell on the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not that I will, but that you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, what we looked at, we've looked at this many times, and we looked at this a few weeks ago, was in chapter 13, and between verse 32 and 37, the church was commanded four separate times, we looked at that in detail, to watch. The church is to be alert. The church is to understand what's going on. We, as we did in our prophecy update on Sunday, it was the intent anyway that we would be watching the world stage and see the things that are going on and, and come to the expectation that Christ should come, should come, could come at any moment. And because of that reality, that we would be busy doing the Lord's work. But instead, what is the church doing? So we find all of ourselves doing it from time to time. Well, back here in chapter 14... We see three times listed, verse 34, Jesus told Peter, stay and watch. Verse 37, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Verse 38, watch and pray. And so you can look at this in Peter, as you should, without a doubt. Look at it in the church also. Jesus had already watched because my second coming, it's going to be a reality, and it's happening. But as far as this day, watch. And and again, the context that it is given, we'll expand on this in a little bit. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Understand the suffering of Christ. Understand what is about to happen. Understand, and we see this in parallel Gospels, as Jesus was in that garden, he was sweating blood. And he was sweating blood because of the magnitude of what was about to happen. Again, sin being placed upon him. Peter, watch and understand what's going on. And then again in verse 37, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Couldn't you just, you know, that I, I look at that and I just see proportion to the hours that I spend doing things that aren't of the word, benign things, but still the, the proportion of, of watching, of being in God's word, of praying versus how we spend so many other hours doing whatever else we do. And then verse 38, again, watch and pray. We're waiting on the Lord, and as I've said so many times, our wait, our wait is to be an active wait. Peter was to be a participant in this, at least in the prayer portion of what was going on. Peter, you want to do something? I'll give you something to do. I'll bring you into the Garden of Gethsemane, this intimate time between me and my Father. And so as Peter who's going to do all of these things that he said he was going to do previously, he's just sit here and watch, Peter. This is what you can do. And he fell asleep. And so I wonder how many times when the Lord just asks us to do the simple things, we fall asleep at the wheel rather than being diligent about what he has called us to do. Because what seems to be even the most insignificant things here on earth are powerful in heaven. One person praying. One person who's dedicated themselves to prayer and to seeking the Lord, whatever the issue may be, that's powerful in the kingdom of heaven. And we can so think of speaking big sermons and all of these things, but it's just doing what God has called us to do. It's all about watching, but again, having that active weight on the Lord and on all that he has called us to do. And so here again in verses 32 through 42, we have a garden. We know it to be the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means oil press. If you go to the Garden of Gethsemane today, we were there just a few months ago, six months ago, whatever it might be, it's a garden of olive trees. There's other things there, but predominantly olive trees. There's one olive tree in there I don't remember. I think it's close to 800, if not even older than that, years old. And the thing about an olive tree, it will bear fruit every moment that it is alive. 
And so in the midst of these trees that are constantly bearing fruit, we have Christ who's given us the ultimate fruit, the fruit of the sacrifice of his life. And there he is in that garden. Again, Gethsemane means oil press. And the idea here is as you press an olive, what is released? What is released is oil. Oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And we see Jesus being pressed. And why is he pressed? Because, again, God's will is going to come about because of that pressing and man will become emboldened. Biblically speaking and literally comparing, we see in these scriptures a tale of two gardens. Charles Dickens said in his Tale of Two Cities as he starts off the book, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Now think in your mind the two gardens, Garden of Eden, Garden of Gethsemane. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief, it was the epoch of incrudity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. Parallels between two gardens and really two different atoms when we consider it. Paul uses this many times in 1 Corinthians 15.45. And so it was written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Looking at the Garden of Eden, it was made pure. Man had fellowship with God, and it was a place of light. But also on the cusp of sin, darkness, and separation. The Garden of Gethsemane, a place that existed amongst sin, darkness, and separation, but also on the cusp of purity, restoration of fellowship with God, a man, and light. In the Garden of Eden, everything contrary to God was about to begin. In the Garden of Gethsemane, that's which would deliver man was about to come to pass. God's fulfillment of his plan for the salvation of mankind is upon us in this garden. Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Eden, we think of Garden of Eden as paradise, but man failed in the midst of paradise. But here, in the midst of darkness, on this dark night in the Garden of Gethsemane, they needed torches to even see who Jesus was. These men who had seen Christ needed Judas to identify him, but nonetheless, it was about to become the most brightest time at any point in the point of history, in the time of history. Eden, looking at some parallels, <clears throat> Eden was paradise, Gethsemane is misery. Eden, man scheming with Satan, Gethsemane, man seeking God. Eden, sin, Gethsemane, redemption. Eden is light, Gethsemane is dark at this time. Eden, got Adam hiding, and Gethsemane, Jesus boldly coming forward. Eden, the father seeking man, Gethsemane, Jesus seeking the father. Eden, death because of the flesh. Gethsemane, life because of the Spirit. In one garden, man takes the fruit, that which is known, attractive, but brings forth spiritually death. Willingly taken and understanding the repercussions, but nonetheless. And the other is the Father's cup. Unknown, Jesus taking sin upon himself. Definitely not easy. He was in despair, but it's that which brings life. The Father's cup, willingly taken, regardless of the repercussions that existed. Every person, every person who has ever been created, he has the choice of his spiritual beverage. Is it going to be the cup of judgment or is it going to be the cup of salvation? The cup of judgment, there was only one person who was qualified to partake of the cup of judgment and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Why did he take of the cup of judgment? So that you wouldn't have to partake of the cup of judgment. That's to receive the judgment of God upon yourself to consume or at least for it to come part of you. The cup of salvation is what we see in the communion meal. It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we are able to consume of and it's that which changes and alters our lives. But the bottom line is this choice is yours. The cup of judgment will bring condemnation. The cup of salvation brings, well, just brings 
unity and brings joy and brings eternity into our lives. Again, verse 32, when they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And so the reason that Christ became troubled and deeply distressed once again isn't because of the scourging, isn't because of the cross as far as being nailed to the cross, isn't even because of his death, but it's because he's about to take sin upon himself. God, for the very first time in all of history, which would be eternity past, is going to feel the effects of sin. Verse 34, then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And the idea is if there's any other way, and that's there for our benefit, that we would know that God the Father did not take that away because there was no other way. It's the reason that the Son was sent. And so the greatest trial, testing, and temptation is about to enter into Jesus' life. And what is it that he desires? What is it that the Lord has in the greatest trial of his life, of those 33 years, but again, of eternity past, eternity future? The only thing he wanted was fellowship and prayer. Fellowship and prayer. I mean, we go through times of trial. We all go through times of testing. We all go through temptation. And what's the most valuable thing? Jesus set the example is fellowship and prayer. What is it that the church usually does during these times? They pull back from fellowship and they pull out of prayer. They pull out of fellowship and that, hey, whatever happened to you? Well, you know, I was going through this real hard time and I just haven't made it to church. And it's like, really? That should be the time when you're really in church. Or, you know what, and going through this issue, oh, you want, no, I, I don't want prayer right now. I don't want anybody to know about it. And, and again, that's completely contrary to what Christ did. And you have to see the value of this, and that's the reason that we have been told to not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Because again, as I pointed out so many times, just the people in this room, if you're a born-again believer, you're, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells inside of you. And the person that comes in that's going through this, this time of trial, testing, and temptation, he, he's surrounded by those people who are, who are under the influence of the Spirit. And, and there's, that's where true ministry comes about. Definitely from the pulpit as the Word of God goes out, but how much more so as people are praying for one another and ministering to one another, either here in the sanctuary afterwards or out in the fellowship area or wherever it might be. And how much more so prayer. Prayer chain we should have pages of prayers that are, 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 are needed to be prayed for on Thursday nights. If you're part of the internet church that we have, watching on Facebook, you go to our webpage, www.ccont.org, and there's a place for prayer for there. You know, there. Prayer, there, the opportunity is definitely there. If you look at our bulletin, probably about, I don't know, about an eighth of it is dedicated to our times of prayer. And if you just call, hey, Pastor Mike, it's 11 o'clock. I know you're having noon prayer. Can you pray for this? We'll pray for it. And so there's just that rich opportunity for prayer. It's that which we need to seek out. And the reason that it's there is because Jesus set the example. Again, in verse 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. When we were coming back from Israel, the first time I went, we were in line. We were coming back, waiting to get on the plane in Israel. And there was a, a young family that was behind me, a father, um, his wife. The wife was holding the baby, and there was a toddler, I don't know, two, three, four years old. And I'm standing there in line. Like I said, they were behind me. And I heard the young child, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but Abba, Abba, Abba. And it was just kind of a neat thing, you know, just to hear that, you know, just to hear it. You know, you read about it in the scriptures, but just to hear this child and the desire for their father and, and how that word is used to describe our father and our relationship with our father who is in heaven. That child wanted something, so they were going to their, their Abba. And we need to be of the same mindset. How could Jesus so willingly submit to the father's will in trial? Nah, you 
look at Jesus and you would think, well, that's easy. And, you know, it was just obviously the natural thing to do. But you have to draw parallels to this as well. And the reason he did was because he knows the nature of the Father. And as we come to the understanding of the nature of the Father, we'll be secure in what God is able to do in our lives also. Have you ever thought of praying the will? What is your will in my life? And Father, I pray that your will would come to pass. Or Lord, I'm really struggling in this situation. What's your will? Because sometimes we'll kind of hold back because we're afraid what the will of the Father is. I had somebody that was wanting to know what God had called him to and was asking me. And I go, well, have you ever prayed for the Father's will? And he goes, well, I'm a little bit worried about that. He didn't want to go, he was worried where God may send him. And I'm thinking, you're worried where God may send you? That's going to be the best place that you could possibly be. And look at the one who is sending you. Now, if it's me, you have some concern there. Because I may be sending you somewhere that's not good for you in my ignorance. Or maybe I don't like you and I'm sending you into a bad city. No, I wouldn't do that. But nonetheless, you get the idea. But this is God. Matter of fact, wherever it is that God sends you, God's already there to receive you. And it's the place that God wants to use you, and it's the place that you'll glorify God, and you'll flourish in your life. And so Jesus is able to pray for the will of God during this most difficult day because he understands the nature of God. In Isaiah 49, verses 15 through 16, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget. You see, I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now keep it in mind that we're told in Philippians chapter 2 that Jesus set aside certain godly attributes. When he was here, he was tempted. Now think of Jesus being tempted as opportunity for sin was placed before him in his humanness. There was the attraction for that, or it's not temptation. And so we see the temptation of, of the devil in, in Matthew chapter 4. And the only reason that's a temptation is because there's the attraction. If there's not the attraction, then it's not a temptation. And so Jesus, even during this time, there was that stress and, and there was that, that, that overwhelming pressure upon him of what was about to happen. And you, I think we see a little a little bit of that in verse 36. All things are possible for you, Abba Father. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, not what I will in my humanness. Keep it in mind, Jesus, was, as he was here on earth, was fully human, fully God. Not what I will, but what you will. Not according to my desires, but according to your plan. Verses 37 through 42 Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Is it enough? The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Two very important contrasting pictures of prayer here. You've got two people. You have Peter and you have Jesus, both about to enter into a time of trials, tribulation, and or temptation. It's the foundation of what we looked at. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles over to James chapter 1. I want to look at a couple of things that are there that relate to this time and and really these times. And so you have the Lord Jesus Christ and you have Peter. Jesus, Jesus was prepared in prayer. Peter, not so much. God's goal in the lives of those who are saved is to raise us up as mature, complete Christians in which nothing is lacking. In order to achieve this, we have the word of God. So James chapter 1, look over at verse 25. It says, But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. And so that's a good thing. But the problem is, we're not always obedient to the word. Back up, verse 23 and 24. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forget what kind of man he was. And so we have the word of God for our lives. And and we've got a rich promise that as we do God's word, we'll be blessed. But unfortunately, we have this tendency to forget what we've heard. And instead of going according to the will of God, we go according to the direction of the flesh. When that happens, God allows physical trials to enter into our lives for the purpose of evaluation and alteration. Now back way up to verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So we have the word of God that will be blessed, but the problem is we go contrary to the word of God, or we forget the word of God. When that happens, then trials and tribulations enter into our lives, because God wants us to mature us, he wants us to be complete, and he wants nothing lacking. And what he's doing is, he's driving us back into the word. So, as you're going through a trial, in order to get the most out of a trial, if you ask, God will give you wisdom concerning that trial. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways." And so we have the word of God that if we live according to it, we'll be blessed. But again, the problem is we forget the word of God. When that happens, trials enter into our lives. But in the midst of that trial, if you pray to God and ask for wisdom, he'll give you the understanding of that trial. And matter of fact, if you look at verses 5 and 6, twice that word is written there. I have it underlined in my Bible. Ask. Ask. You, how do you ask? You, you ask in prayer. And so the idea is, is to seek wisdom out in prayer in the midst of your trial because you have failed in the word of God, although if you live your life in the word of God, you'll be blessed. But in the midst of that, you've got spiritual warfare as well. You've got the devil trying to throw the monkey wrench into the midst of it. And what does the devil use? He uses what he's used throughout all of history. He tries to use your flesh. And so God gives a trial for development, but the devil tries to enter in and take your attention off because people will pray in the midst of trials. But what I've seen, my experience, and I've experienced in my own life as well, instead of asking for wisdom, we ask that the trial would simply go away. What happens if the trial goes away? Then God's not fulfilling his purpose. Then you're not going to mature, you're not going to be complete, and you're going to be lacking and you will continue to ignore the word of God, and you'll not be blessed in all that you do. And so you really, we really need to see how all of this really ties together. As I do the word of God, I'm going to be blessed, but I'm an imperfect person. And so trials are going to come, but what do we do? We pray for wisdom in the midst of the trial. Lord, what's going on in my life? Lord, why have you allowed this to enter? And you've got reason, and you've got purpose, because remember, all things are working together for the good. And so God's got reason and purpose in that trial. And Lord, give me wisdom that I may understand that. We ought not to be so quick to just pray that the trial goes away, but we're able to glean everything that God has for us in that trial. And so going back to the garden, going back to Mark chapter 14, one party, Jesus, upon entering into trials and tribulation, he prays passionately. He does pray for it to go away, but notice how it doesn't, but he does pray for God's will to happen. He emerges victorious. But then we have the other party, Peter, the one who says, I will, I will, I will, when in actuality he can't, can't, can't. Peter, he's the party who sleeps through prayer and he falls into trials and temptations, and he's ill-prepared. He emerged defeated for a time, although he ended up as us all when we fell, restored to the grace of God. We see that in the last chapter of John. But look at, I want to compare, I've done this before, but I want to compare Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 34, when Jesus is speaking of what's going to be going on in Peter's life, and I want to equate that to what we just read in um, James chapter 1. In Luke chapter 22, speaking of, uh, of Peter's denial, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. 
Now, he didn't call him Peter, Peter. He called him his name of the flesh. Simon, Simon, indeed. Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. He's understanding God's plan and purpose for Peter, and he has asked for him. And so the idea here is Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. The idea is that he may tempt you in a time of trial. Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me or when the trial is over, that's an interesting thing. So Peter at no point lost his salvation but he did fail in the midst of the trial, as we will all do from time to time. Jesus prayed that he would not fail, but it says, and when you return to me. So the prayer that Jesus was prayed was over the long term that he would not fail, but there's going to be those times of, uh, of, of stumbling, and there's going to be those times of falling. So, you know, when you hear this, I have prayed for you, you're going to think, okay, then it's no big deal. But when you return to me, it's like, wait a minute, what do you mean return? Well, it's going to test you to the depths of who you are when that trial is over he says strengthen your brethren or bear fruit because what's happened it was through that trial that you're matured it's through that trial that we we grow and that we understand how god works and it's then that we're able to comfort others with the same comfort in which we were comforted with but he said to him lord i am ready to go now he's peter's again taking everything out well he's processing it according to the flesh but he said to him lord i am ready to go with you both to prison and to death see what peter is he's slow to hear he's swift to speak and he's quick to wrath then he said i tell you peter the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me and the idea here is if you won't listen god's going to give you a lesson he's going to allow this trial to enter in for the purpose of learning Peter's problem, he was sleeping in prayer. Because he was sleeping in prayer, he'll be failing later on in the trial that enters in. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And the verbiage speaks that he continuously kissed him. And as we pointed out before, the name Judas means praise. And what we see is this betrayer who is, has this outward expression of praise or affection towards him, but inwardly he has this hardened heart. Verse 46, Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man uh, young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. It's kind of interesting here. In verse 47, one of those who stood by and drew the sword, notice how the name's not mentioned there. And then down in verse 51, there was this certain young man, name's not mentioned there as well. Well, we know in verse 47, that's Peter. Verse 51, there are those who say it's John, but there's others that say that's, this was Mark, John Mark. Who, who was there, and, and this was the young man. And that kind of plays out, because I can imagine, if you keep in mind this, this gospel, this gospel is written by Mark, but it's saying that Mark, our tradition says, that Mark was transcribing it as it was spoken by Peter. And I can imagine when they came to verse 47, about the one who struck the, the, um, the, the ear of the, uh, of the servant with the sword, Peter would say, you know, you don't need to really put my name in there. We don't really need to mention who, you know, who that was. And I imagine Mark would say, well, you know what? If I don't put your name in there, can I leave my name out of verse 51? You know, as far as fleeing away naked and how ridiculous that must have looked. Um, take that with what you want. But the idea here is Peter, and you need to see, we'll close with this last picture of, of typology with the apostle Peter. Peter... He decided on a very poor choice of weapons. We are not to depend upon what we're able to do, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What Peter did is he took out the sword of flesh, and the result, this man Malchus, this man Malchus lost an ear. I wonder how many people 
because the church acted, thinking they're doing a good thing. I mean, Peter thinks he's defending Jesus Christ. But thinking that they're doing a good thing, lopping off the ears to hear what the Spirit has to say of those who, well, maybe have opposing views, those who don't know the Lord, and these things are foolishness to them. How, how many times when somebody comes and wants to talk about the things of the Lord or debate the things of the Lord, or when I say the things of the Lord, their beliefs, or ask you about your beliefs, how many times do we lop off ears through our attitudes? How many times do we lop off ears by reacting in the flesh rather than acting by the Spirit? Because if you lop off ears, again, they have no ear to hear what the Spirit has to say. And what I mean is, is because of our attitudes sometimes, we can close the hearing of people. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And what Jesus did, as we see in others' parallel Gospels, he healed that man. He put the ear back on. Because why? Because that was the passageway to salvation for that man. And if the church is lopping off ears through legalism, through just being hard-hearted, through traditions or whatever it might be, we're closing the door of salvation to others. But as we are strong in the power of the Lord, it's then that we're able to touch the hearts and souls of mankind. And so we got these rich pictures as the cross looms before Christ. Only a matter of hours now we'll be looking at the trial and the denial of Jesus Christ by Peter and, and the trial by the Jews and, and, and all these things. But it's headed towards that time again, that one undeniable time, the cross of Christ that altered the course of history, that which washed our sins away. And these things that are leading up to it, they're all teaching us lessons that we would be able to tell others of the great things that God has done for them, even as he has done them for us. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your word, and we just pray, Lord, that your gospel would be forever on our heart. But, Lord, I just pray that we would watch, that we would be people who are alert, that we'd be alert to God's word and studying God's word, especially as we're at the beginning of a new year, to get into reading God's word every day, that, Lord, we would watch through prayer and that we would seek you out that we would watch in the midst of fellowship and that we would understand the signs of the times, but also be aware of those who are around us in the body of Christ, those who are struggling, that we would lift them up outside of these doors, those who are perishing, that we would see them brought in. And so, Father, we just thank you for this evening. We just pray, Father, as we first study of a new year, that you would bless us and that, Lord, we in turn would be a blessing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? This Sunday morning, we are going to be back in 1 Peter in chapter 3, and Sunday evening, we're going to be back in 2 Chronicles. Um, I don't know if Sean announced it, because I don't know if he knows about it yet anyway, but Sherry Youngward is going to be out a week from this Sunday. She's a, a worship artist. She's uh, shared here a few times. I think, yeah, she did. She did do one of our women's retreats. She did worship there, so I encourage you to come out. That's going to be a week from this Sunday. Other than that, just looking forward to what God has for us in this new year. God bless you guys.
Father God, we just thank you for that cross. For without one plea, we come to you, Lord, knowing that you'll change us. So, Father, help us to keep focused on you this year, to be embedded in your word and in fellowship, Father, just to cling to you. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. See you Sunday. <laughs>